Go ahead and open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. That'll be the text we're going to launch from this morning, and we'll be in it next week as well. What I decided to do is split this up because it was too much for one sermon to deal with in a, in a way that's needed. Last week we looked at the aspect of discipleship, of confession, and uh, confession as well as what we're going to consider this morning, repentance, are two foundational things for a disciple to know, to understand, and to be practicing. Confession, if you remember, literally means agreement with God. It deals with facts. You come to a place when you confess where you see it as God sees it, and you say that He's correct. That's, that's right, God. You're not bringing to light something He didn't know. You're bringing to light something He says you shouldn't be doing. And so... Confession is needed, but it's not complete. You can, you can confess to facts without having a repentant heart. You remember last week I ended with that illustration of the cop killer who confessed to killing the cops. And as he's being sentenced, he stands up and says, I'm going to kill more. So he confessed, yet he didn't have repentance. And so these two really aren't separable, even though we separated them for the sake of looking at them. Um, Confession goes with repentance. We're going to look at, look at that this morning. Each and every one of us who may or may not have been born again yet, but if you have been born again, you still realize that there's this struggle within you. There's this battle within your flesh where the presence of sin is still there, even though the power of sin has been broken in your life. Solomon said it this way when he dedicated the temple. He said, there's not a person on earth not a single soul who does not sin. Pretty plain and simple. We still sin. We still need the blood of Christ to cover our sin. And because we still sin, we still need confession and repentance as part of the disciplines of the Christian faith. But unfortunately, repentance, what we're going to talk about this morning, has really been demonized and really thrown in a black light, if you will, by our culture who doesn't like to be told what they're doing is wrong, we shouldn't do that. My goal this morning is to show you that repentance is beautiful, that it's good, to remove that stigma that the the culture places on it. In fact, repentance is as much a part of the gospel as preaching faith in Christ is. I want to read a few passages in our introduction here. Before Jesus began to minister... He was baptized first by John the Baptist, then he was immediately led out into the wilderness by the Spirit to be, temp- to be tempted and tested. After he passed that 40 days, the very first ministry opportunity he had, recorded in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1, he comes to Galilee and he says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. So Jesus' literally very first words of ministry was repent and believe in the Gospel. Luke records that the last words of Jesus were the same thing. He commands his disciples, that the, he reminds them that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached to all the nations. And then he's taken up into heaven. So he begins and he ends his ministry with that same message, repentance and forgiveness of sins. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 says that repentance is one of the foundational teachings of the church, along with baptism. And others. It's one of the very fundamental first teachings of the church. In fact, so important and foundational is repentance 
that Jesus said in Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's no salvation without repentance. In our passage, Paul's going to make the similar case. We must understand repentance. But in a general sense, and I'm going to use an illustration here to, to remove this stigma of repentance for us. In a general sense, not necessarily a biblical sense, repentance is something that everyone practices, whether you know it or not. I want to give you some examples to disarm repentance for you. Listen to this, the drug addict. Maybe you have a family member who's, who struggles with drug addiction. Maybe you have yourself. The drug addict who sees how this habit has spent his money, has taken his energy, maybe taken his family, his health, his mind, his body, becomes sorrowful, he becomes angry over his decision to ever try drugs in the first place. And seeing that it has cost him so much, he makes a decision to go to rehab and to get clean. He's just repented. Moreover, once he's clean, he finds the joy of health in both mind and body. He sees that his addiction has cost him so much, and he sees what he's been missing out on, and he's now happy to regain all that back. Would you agree with that? that's a good thing? If you knew someone who was struggling with drug addiction, would you not applaud them for that decision? Absolutely. Let me give you another example, common to us. A man finds himself 150 pounds overweight. His knees hurt, his back hurts, he has no energy. He's beginning to suffer from serious medical issues because of his overweightness. He becomes sorrowful and even angry at himself for allowing his body to come to such a state and to miss out on so much of life. He makes a decision to begin to exercise, to eat healthier. He begins to lose that extra weight and comes to a healthy body weight. That man's just repented. That's what repentant is. We made a TV show out of that. We applaud that. It's not stigmatized in the culture, and yet when we take it into the religious context, all of a sudden it becomes a scary bad thing. In principle, it's no different. It's a good and it's a grace. And we should applaud each other when we repent well. We should encourage each other to repent biblically because it's good. So I hope those illustrations disarm what repentance is. What we're going to consider this morning very quickly, one is a definition of repentance biblically. What it, what, how is that word used in a theological context? We've just given illustrations of how it's used in a secular context. How is it used in the Bible? Secondly, in our passage, we're going to consider very briefly the stakes are high in it. One path leads to death, one path leads to salvation. That's how Paul puts it. And then I'm going to end, and this really is the main point I'm going to focus on this morning, is what repentance is and is not. Next week, we'll stay in this passage of 2 Corinthians 7 and look at what repentance produces. The fruit of repentance, if you will. All right? So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 8. We'll go through verse 11. Paul writes, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 
For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, and what punishment. At every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. As I said, we're not going to consider verse the end of verse 10 and verse 11 this week. That'll be next week's, the fruit, what it produces. This week we're going to focus on verses 9 and 10. Let me flip my notes here. They're stuck. There we go. All right, so the word that Paul uses in this chapter for repentance, the Greek word literally means a change or alteration of your mind. Now, I know most of us understand repentance as a change of direction. It becomes that. But it is so important you understand the definition of repentance is a change of mind first. Change of alteration of mind, specifically from evil to good or from worse to better. Here's how the American College Dictionary defines repentance. To feel self-reproach or contrition for past conduct. To change one's mind with regard to past action, especially in consequence of the results. So repentance, biblically, is a change of mind. It's a directional term. First, in our minds and our hearts, we've been thinking one way, but now our minds have to change how it's been thinking about something. Same happens in our hearts. Repentance, as I said, is something everyone does, whether they use that term or not. In a theological context, when we come to repentance and faith in God, what we come to is we now confess Jesus is Lord, where before we used to think we were Lord, and we did exactly what we wanted to do. My thinking in my heart is changed. In fact, if all you focus on in repentance, and this is why I'm so big on, on the definition of repentance, because if all you do is focus on the change of direction, you can be wooed into a false repentance. Alcoholics can quit drinking. Have they repented? Not necessarily. An adulterer can stop adulterating people with other people. Has their heart changed? Not necessarily. And we're going to look at that. It's first a change of mind and heart, which is the cause of sin. When the cause is dealt with, the effects will follow. Would you agree with that? The effects are your behavior. We just went through the parenting class this summer, and essentially what that was about is dealing with the heart of your child, not the behavior of your child. When the heart is dealt with, the behavior of the kid changes. In parenting, so many parents just try and deal with the behavior. You're treating symptoms, not the cause when you do that. The same is true in repentance. We must deal with the cause. The cause is in our heart and mind. That's where sin is. Jesus said, it's from the heart that the mouth speaks, and it's from the heart that one is defiled. God does his work in the heart and mind of people first. When that's clean, Jesus said, the inside of the cup is clean, then the outside will be clean also. Okay? So repentance is first a change of mind. But I highlight that because it keeps us from legalism. It'll keep us from legalism. We'll understand that repentance is part of the grace of the gospel. We can't change our own hearts and our own minds. In fact, two different times at the very least in Scripture, repentance is, is called a gift of God. 
that God has to grant repentance to us. Why? Because it's a work of the heart and mind. We can't do that work. I can amend my ways somewhat, but I can't change my heart. Can a leopard change his spots? Jeremiah asks, no. Neither can you change your ways, says the Lord. So it keeps us from legalism and keeps us squarely in the gospel of grace. I don't want to fall into the trap of, of being a behavior Nazi kind of guy, you know. No, I want to deal with your heart. And when your heart is being dealt with, your behavior, I won't have to deal with. I'll always go for the heart. Okay, so what a blessing to preach repentance. Because it's a means of God's grace for us to come in to blessedness with Him. We started this whole series talking about the whole aim of the Christian is to come to this relationship with Christ where we abide in Him. We enjoy Him. We worship Him. We fellowship with Him. When that's broken, what needs to happen? Confession and repentance. Why? So that that can be restored with Him. It's a blessing and it's a good and it's a grace. We are thankful for repentance because it is only... I said this last week, it is only under this gospel dispensation that repentance is even allowed. See, under the law, it is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. If you sin, you die. But in the gospel, if you sin, you can repent. You can change and live. What are the stakes? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, He says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I want you to understand, and this is going to be a quick point, but I want you to understand how important this is that we understand. There is a kind of sorrow over sin that will not get you any closer to God. In fact, it will lead you to death. There's a kind of sorrow over sin that does produce godly grief, godly repentance, and it leads to salvation. There's sorrow present in two people, and yet they will end up at opposite ends of the spectrum. Salvation and death. If that's the case, it is so important that we understand what this is. There's sorrow very often in people who sin. So I want to move with the stakes being clear, salvation or death, that's what's at stake in understanding repentance. Let's consider for the rest of this morning what repentance is not and what repentance is. Because if it's that high of a stake, we need to understand it. All right? So three things that will highlight what repentance is not. First, repentance is not fear of legal consequences or perhaps sorrow of legal accountability. Give you an illustration. A man gets caught red-handed stealing a TV. It just so happened that the cop was walking by the store when he was doing it, and he's running out. He gets caught red-handed. He immediately begins to be sorrowful and fearful and tremble. Has he repented? No. Not necessarily. His conscience might strike him with fear, over the consequences that now await him, now that he's caught. He pleads with the judge. He confesses his guilt. He takes responsibility. He pleads for mercy. And the judge takes that criminal at his word, lets him go. Once that storm has subsided and the threat of legal consequence is gone, he'll go right back to what he's done. 
Fear of legal consequences does not change your heart. It makes you fearful. A ter- terror, terror in the heart is not the same as repentance in the heart. Judas is a great biblical example of this. Judas definitely had a troubled conscience, right? He threw back the money that was paid to him in betraying the Lord. But what did he do? He went and hung himself. He didn't repent. He didn't have a change of mind. A sense of guilt is not enough to cause someone to repent. It's only enough to breed terror. Now that's good. We should be fearful of the consequences of things we've done. But at that point, you can go toward worldly grief or godly grief. The fact that there's terror in your heart doesn't mean you've come to a place of godly grief yet. It just means you're fearful, potentially, of consequences of sin. Second, repentance is not having a resolution against sin. Now, don't get me wrong. We should all resolve not to sin. That's good. We should come to the place where we don't want it. But resolutions against sin comes after repentance has taken place in the heart. Once we've dealt with the issue, then we come to the place of saying, I don't ever want to go back there again. But when you're still in it, and you say, oh, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this, you haven't still dealt with the issue. How many of us have made vows to never do a sin again, and once our conscience settles down and stops accusing us, you found yourself right back in it? Have you been there? Too many times to to confess, in fact. We often make vows because sin and its consequences are painful, but not because sin is sinful. We don't like the pain of sin. We don't like the terror of sin, so we vow to never do it again. A vow is we, we vow to sin, not to sin, because sin is sinful, not because it's painful. People might also make a vow never to sin again because of the future evil that might await them if they engage in it. I'll give you an example, personal example. I avoided drugs growing up. Never took them. I never wanted to. I never will. I've, I've resolved in my heart not to do it. But I was not a Christian at all when I made those vows to never do drugs. I made those vows because I didn't want the consequences of what I could see drugs would do in people. I didn't want to become an addict. I didn't want to lose my teeth. I didn't want to end up in jail. I didn't want to lose my mind. It was a completely self-love that motivated me to that decision. It was not because I saw drugs as sinful. That's the difference. So you can make a vow not to do something out of a self-love, not out of a righteous motivation. It's certainly the case with me in many things. So repentance is not resolution against sin. But third, and this might be the hardest for us to see, so I'm going to labor at this. Repentance is not necessarily leaving many sinful things. So I want to go back to the definition of repentance. Repentance is first what? Change of mind. It's a change of mind. If you don't stick to that definition you will be fooled on what repentance is because people can leave sinful behaviors and not repent if their minds and their hearts have never been changed. Repentance is directional, meaning biblical repentance is repentance toward God. People can repent from this 
only go to go to that. Many people do experience a kind of repentance, a sorrow, a turning from wicked things. Their turning is not to the Lord, but to some other means of deliverance. Over and over and over we read in the Old Testament, Israel, when they were in sin, would not turn to the Lord for deliverance. They turned to the king of Egypt, right? So they'd recognize the trouble they're in. They need deliverance. That's the kind of repentance. Their mind has changed. But who would they turn to? Egypt to deliver them. So God would now deal with that. They'd move from one master to the next. Herod is a good example in the New Testament of this. Herod had a love for the Jews, so he did many, many reforms for the Jews. And yet, John the Baptist picked up on one thing that he wouldn't relent from. Herod was in an ancestral relationship. And John the Baptist called him out. And so Herod had him beheaded. He would reform these areas, but he wanted to hold on to this area. So there's many that have a kind of repentance that's simply trading one vice for another or trading one master for another. Let me illustrate it this way. Joseph in the Old Testament was sold into slavery by his brothers to the Ishmaelites. The Ishmaelites sold Joseph to Potiphar. Then Potiphar placed Joseph in prison. In all three cases, Joseph had different masters. Ishmaelites, Potiphar, the prison. But in all three cases, he was still a slave. What's the point? The point is this. Even so, a person can cease being a slave of one sin, only to be mastered by something else, and still a slave of sin. A person may cease to be addicted to alcohol, only to find themselves a slave of their own pride at overcoming alcoholism. No repentance taking place. They've just traded one master for another. Repentance is directional, it's toward God, and it's a change of mind in that biblical sense. I hope that illustrates, I wanted to illustrate, many people can change things about their life without having undergone repentance. That's why we stick to our definition, it's a change of mind. So let's talk now for the rest of our time this morning, what is repentance? If you want to keep your finger here in, in 2 Corinthians, turn to Luke chapter 15. It's the parable of the prodigal son. And I debated whether I should just teach out of this parable this morning. I love this parable. I'm not going to because I want to go back to 2 Corinthians next week. But Luke 15, if you don't know the parable, the parable is this. Jesus gives an illustration of a son who tells his father, I want my inheritance now. Basically saying, I wish you were dead, give me my money. The father gives him the inheritance. The son goes and squanders it on prostitutes and partying. He finds himself without any means to live. There's a famine in the land, so he as a Jew takes a job feeding pigs, which is absolutely desecration for a Jew. He's, he's longing to eat the pig food. That's how desperate he came, became. And in verse 17 of Luke 15, it says this, When he came to himself... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So in the parable, the son sees his sin and the reality that he is in because of his choices. He comes to himself. That's the first step in repentance, sight of sin. 
So many people can see the the speck in someone else's eyes, Jesus said, and fail to take note of the log in their eye. Remember that? We are all very good at this. And we're all very good at noticing everybody else's faults and yet being completely oblivious to our own. The very first thing that needs to happen in biblical repentance is you need to come to yourself. Thomas Watson, an old Puritan, said this, before a person can come to Christ, they must first come to themselves. And what he meant is this, they must first have sight of who they really are. I am a wretch. It seems trivial, but it is paramount. People can be so accusative of others without recognizing their own issues. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it, says the Lord. The heart will blind us to the true reality of ugliness and sinfulness. And repentance cannot happen until we see our sin. I want you to listen to this verse. Thinking about what we just said, repentance begins with the mind reflecting upon the self, seeing itself. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said, 2 Corinthians 4.4, that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Do you see that? They're blinded in their minds so that they don't see the light of the gospel. The first step to repentance is that you come to see the gospel and who you are in light of it. You see yourself as you are. Repentance begins when the mind becomes unblinded to its own sin. The second thing about repentance is what we talked about last week. Confession. Ownership of our sin. Again, in Luke 15, verses 18 and 19, what's the son do? He comes to his senses and then he takes ownership of where he's at. I will arise, go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. In fact, the son accused himself before the father ever could accuse him. You see that? That's confession. You've dealt honestly with your sin before God. You might have sinned against your spouse, your neighbor, your friend, your sibling. And you accuse yourself before they ever have a chance to. So that when they come knocking on your door and say, Hey, buddy, you know what you did to me? You say, Yes, I do. And I'm so sorry I did that. There's confession. There's ownership of it. I I don't know of, of two godlier people in Scripture, Nehemiah and Daniel. Both lived around the time of the captivity. Daniel obviously lived in captivity and was really raised by God to lead Israel during that time. Nehemiah led Israel after the captivity into the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Absolute awesome studies of what godly men look like. I want you to listen. In fact, while you turn to Daniel 9 and keep your your finger in Daniel 9, I want to read part of Daniel's prayer after I read part of Nehemiah's prayer. And I want you to just listen how Nehemiah and Daniel confess sin, how they take ownership of these issues. Okay, so keep your finger in Daniel 9. I'll make my way to Nehemiah, and I just want you to listen to Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah chapter 1. 
I'm going to read verse 6 and 7. So Nehemiah has inquired from his brothers how Jerusalem is. It's laying in ruins. Even though the captives are returning, their city, their temple is in ruins. And here's Nehemiah's prayer. He said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you both night and day for the people of Israel confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Do you see how the pronoun changed? It's not they have sinned, we have sinned. Daniel lived 70 years after the events. He's still taking ownership of it. We have sinned before you. Then he goes on, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Confession takes ownership. Listen to Daniel in Daniel 9. I want to read verse 3 through 11. I love Daniel as a, as a portrait of godliness. Daniel's just discerned that they are to be in captivity for 70 years through reading Jeremiah the prophet. And he says this, verse 3, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you've driven them, because of the treachery that they've committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. What a confession. What ownership. But I want to remind you again, God used Nehemiah and Daniel unlike any other people in the Old Testament. They are the picture of godliness. My point is this. When we practice biblical confession and repentance, it's a blessing. You are now usable in the Lord's hands. I made a quick list of what their confessions contained. It contained self-accusations. I, we have sinned. It was voluntary, as was the case in the prodigal son. He accused himself before the father ever could. There was resentment over their sin. In the case of Nehemiah, there was sincerity over it. They were grieved. They were troubled. In fact, Augustine, the great old saint, said that before he was truly converted, he would confess sin and beg for power over it. And yet in his heart, his heart would whisper to him, but not yet, Lord. What, is, what Augustine is saying, he wasn't sincere. His heart still wanted to hang on to the sin for a little while longer. Nehemiah and Daniel said, we want it done. Restore us. Not only that, there is particular sin mentioned, as well as sin as a whole. Daniel confessed in 9.6 that we, 9, 6, we haven't listened to the voice of your prophets. And he also talked about how they've rebelled against all the rules that you've said through your prophet Moses. And most importantly, in confession and repentance, there's no animosity toward God. Daniel's prayer is so important. They cleared God of wrongdoing. 
Daniel said, righteous are you, O Lord. The catastrophe that we've brought on ourselves, you are just to do it. You clear God of wrongdoing. You see that God was in the right and I was in the wrong. You take ownership of it. That's confession. But third, repentance will end with the turning from sin. So there's the sight of sin, there's confession of sin, and there's the turning from sin. This is how most of us think of repentance, but it really is the effect of repentance. When your heart has been changed, when your mind has been changed about something you've been doing, you turn from it. Just as the drug addict finally comes to the place to see, you know what, this is killing me. I'm leaving it. They turn. There's a bad example of this. Pharaoh, during the Exodus, remember the plague of the hailstones coming down and destroying the land. It's one of the many plagues. In Exodus 9.27, it says, When the plague of hail came down and destroyed everything, Pharaoh cried out and confessed, I have sinned. Once the hail stops, Verse 34 says this, When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and all of his servants. It's a bad example of turning from sin. It's a good example of what repentance is not. Pharaoh was undergoing legal troubles with the Lord, right? His kingdom was being destroyed. He cried out in confession and repentance. The legal terror stopped. What did he do? Went right back to it. The result of true biblical repentance, the change of mind, is a change of action. It always begins in the mind, works its way out into your behavior. If the mind and heart are left untouched, actions will not follow. Here's what Ezekiel 14, I'm going to read a few passages real quick just to illustrate this turning from sin. Ezekiel 14, 6, Therefore says, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, Turn away from your faces from all your abominations. Isaiah 55, 7 says this, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. And then Job eleven fourteen, If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your hearts. Paul would pick up on that same theme in the book, theme in the book of Ephesians, saying, Let the thief steal no longer. Right? but let him work with his hands. That's repentance. That's the turning from sin. So repentance is so important. It begins with seeing it rightly, sight of sin. It leads to confessing, taking ownership of what you see, and then it leads to turning from that. Repentance and the sorrow associated with it is only good and needed when dealing with sin. But just as soon as the wellspring of our heart is broken over our sin, we are then refreshed by the goodness of the Lord. And if you've ever undergone biblical repentance, you know what I'm talking about. There's a time of sorrow when you're dealing with sin. It's painful. It's bitter. But it's needed. Because there's love of sin in each one of our hearts, and it's a stronghold in us. And so to turn that love of sin in our hearts... The Lord makes repentance bitter so that we don't want it anymore. That's good. I don't want to want sin. I don't want to love those sins that are deeply lodged in here. I want to hate them. How does it happen? Repentance happens. It turns what's sweet into bitterness. 
The psalmist said this, sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There is an end to it. Back in our original text in 2 Corinthians 8, or 7, 8 and 9, I'm sorry. If you want to make your way, we're going to end with this. In verse 8 of chapter 7, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. I wanted to summarize that for us. Paul said he didn't regret making them grieve by his letter. Now, pastors very often are tempted. I'm just going to open up to you about pastoral circles. Pastors are very tempted to refrain from making their own people grieve because there's temptation of losing members. Paul says, I'm not grieved that I'm, I'm not sad I made you grieve. Now, if Paul's only aim is just to beat you up and yell at you and hammer you, that's wrong. Paul says, I'm not, I'm not sad that I made you grieve because it made you repent. It restored you. It brought you into that path of salvation. So he wasn't, he didn't regret making them grieve. Rather, he said in verse 9, he rejoiced. Not because they were grieved. He rejoiced because they were grieved into repenting. Have you ever rejoiced over someone repenting? It's beautiful. Because you see that burden that they've been carrying around taken off of them. You see them freed. You see joy and life restored to them. What's there not to rejoice over when someone undergoes biblical repentance? It's beautiful. Their hearts are clean. Their conscience is clean. They have laughter. They have joy. They have peace. There's nothing unrejoiceful about that. Paul said, I rejoiced. I want us to be a biblical church that can see this happen in each other where we can be vulnerable enough to where we can be broken in front of each other and that we are surrounded by Christians who've also been broken at times. So that after we come through that process of biblical repentance, joy is also restored. And we're surrounded by people who understand that too. And we can encourage one another. We can comfort one another. Hey, deal with your sin before, before the Lord. He's good. He's merciful. He's forgiving. You'll come to an end with it. Don't fear the process of being broken. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's bitter. It needs to be bitter so that our hearts don't love that sin anymore. But it's turned to love of God. It leads to salvation, Paul said, without regret. There's no regret when biblical repentance happens. It's a beautiful grace of the gospel. I want to end quoting this scripture to you. It's out of the book of Hosea. And if you know Hosea's message, it's, it's a very powerful book. Hosea was the prophet who was commanded to marry a prostitute. Because not only was Hosea's message prophetic, Hosea's life was to depict the nation of Israel. Israel was playing the prostitute with the Lord. They were the adulterous nation, playing a harlot with all the other gods. But Hosea is quoted saying this, The nation is responding to the Lord's rebuking of them. Just listen to these words. 
Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us so that he may heal us. He has struck us down so that he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up so that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Maybe you're at that place where you've been torn, you've been struck down because of sin in your life. The promise is so clear before you come, return to the Lord. Why? He will heal, He will bind, He will raise you up. Just as sure as the rains come in the spring, the Lord will do this. Come, let us press on to know the Lord. I want you to go before the Lord and just thank Him. Worship Him this morning that you are allowed to repent. This is the only time that God's allowing this in the gospel dispensation. It's beautiful. It's a good. It's a grace. And then we're going to sing a song. So take some time to go before the Lord. Father, thank You that in dealing with our sin, we can deal with it without fear of condemnation. Knowing that Christ has paid the penalty of it. Father, it's, no, it's a small thing for us to carry that shame as he was shamed for it. Because we'll never have to pay the penalty of our sin. Father, you tell us in your word that we must, each and every one of us, take up our cross and follow you. We must die to self. Confession and repentance is that side of discipleship that deals with death to self. It's painful. It hurts. Our flesh doesn't want to die. It doesn't want to submit to who you are. It doesn't want to be told that it can't do this or that. It only cares for itself, and yet we are to live for you. God, you give grace. Where sin abounds in our life, grace abounds even more. You've given us every supply to deal with the power as well as the presence of sin in our life. Father, I pray for our, for our church, I pray for myself, that we see repentance as a good, as an ultimate good, that we're not scared of it, that we're thankful that we can confess and turn because it is life for us. It is peace. It is our joy. Because in confessing and turning from sin, we gain fellowship with you, which is our ultimate place of joy. Thank you for being a good father. Thank you for being great and glorious. Thank you for the work of salvation that you accomplished on our behalf. When we couldn't change and stop sinning in your plan through Christ, you made it possible for us to die and die to that principle of sin, but yet be raised in the newness of life with Christ so we can live to him and live for him. Father, if there's any who are struggling with this in their heart, I pray that they come to you. The invitation has come. 
And Father, if there's any struggling with this and needs prayer, I pray they come forward. We have many men here, women who can pray with them, Lord, who can comfort them. Pray we're a church that ministers to each other in these times of need, that we can be vulnerable with each other. Say, I'm not all right. I've got issues. We come clean. Pray in Christ's name.